ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Since 2014, commentators have increasingly labeled Russia and Vladimir Putin specifically as nationalist. Critics point to Russia's assertive foreign policy, the use of rhetoric that appeals to the Russian nation, or the increased visibility of people like Alexander Dugin in Russia's political sphere. But the place of Russian nationalism has always had an ambiguous role in Russian history, and one that Russian leaders, past and present, have at times exploited and other times tiptoed around. So what is Russian nationalism? How does it relate to Russia as an empire and Russians as an ethnicity? I turn to Marlena Lauruel for some answers. Marlena Lauruel is an associate director and research professor at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies in the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University and co-director of PONARS, the Program on New Approaches to Research and Security in Eurasia. She's the author of several books in English, French, and Russian. Her most recent books are Russian Nationalism, Imaginaries, Doctrines, and Political Battlefields, published by Rutledge, an edited collection, Entangled Far Rights, a Russian-European intellectual romance in the 20th century, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press, and co-authored with Jean Radvani, Understanding Russia, the Challenges of Transformation, published by Roman and Littlefield. I've also provided a partial transcript to this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes and on the podcast website. Here's Marlena Laruel. You've just published two books on Russian nationalism. Uh, one is called Russian Nationalism, Imaginaries, Doctrines, and Political, uh, the, and Political Battlefield, and an edited collection entitled Entangled Far Rights, a Russian-European Intellectual Romance in the 20th Century, and so I thought I'd start our discussion of, of Russian nationalism and its history and how it works in the present by, by just having you outline how scholars have understood this, the topic of Russian nationalism. Yeah, that's a good first question, because in fact, there have been several ways and waves of understanding Russian nationalism globally, right, in the, in the Western uh, scholarship. What is interesting is that in the Cold War, it was really mostly studied as a kind of political philosophy or history of idea. And there was no really study of any kind of sociological background to who can be the Russian nationalist. So it was kind of something exotic happening under the, the Marxist-Leninist facade of the regime. In the 90s, in fact, this kind of Cold War trend of looking at Russian nationalism only at the kind of discourse level continued, it, but it was really mostly seen as a kind of illness of the Russian body. It's really representing the wars of Russia, the communists and Jirinovsky. So the literature in the 90s was also very, in a sense, caricatural and very limited to political philosophy. And it's only in the 2000s that things began changing with new approaches more people looking at the kind of the sociological background of this Russian nationalism, doing kind of cultural anthropology. Also, I think the rise of memory studies played a big role in helping kind of capturing the, the more kind of societal background, the study of, you know, Soviet nostalgia, the cultural production. So slowly we can see the, the birth of this, the transformation of this Russian nationalism field as something that is not only kind of looking at narratives and discourse and political philosophy, but trying to see who are the constituencies, 
which different format of nationalism you can have. And I think one of the big shifts that we have been seeing in the scholarship recently is to understand that Russian nationalism is mostly a cultural phenomenon before being very visible at the political one. And so that kind of helps shifting the, 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 the way we study it. And of course, I mean, at the same time in parallel, but that's not really scholarly production, that's more media and policy production. It's this trend of associated nationalism always with authoritarianism and great power reassertion. So there, the, the, the terminology is entirely kind of mixed up and nationalism is a kind of meta- metaphor synonym to say that Putin is an authoritarian leader or it's just Russia, great power reassertion. But that's not so much the scholarly production that more the kind of media and think tank uh, uh, narrative. That's the impression I get when I see this, the word nationalism thrown around so much is is that it's really law. It doesn't have, it's almost, it doesn't have any substance behind it really in terms of how I understand it coming from, you know, reading about it in, in scholarly works. And in fact, one of the things that you point out, which I think is really important to keep in mind, is that it's, you can't even really talk of Russian nationalism. It's more of Russian nationalisms. There's many trajectories in it. And they 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 sometimes intersect, but they all have different, um, you know, orientations that they're focusing on. So, what are how do you understand it in in terms of the various vectors of of Russian nationalism? I think it's so. Yeah, what you mentioned is is really I think very important. Also, what seems to me really crucially the way we try to confuse Russian nationalism and nation building of today's Russia. Because on the many aspects, and that's why when I'm saying that I don't consider the Russian state as being nationalist, what I want to say is that, in fact, I think it's mostly working at creating a nation building for Russia, that the state level production. But it's Russian nationalists themselves are people who are not state produce individual and groups. They are kind of grassroots. They have their own agenda. They are very often confrontational to the Russian state, even if at the same time they can be used by it. So you have this kind of interesting, of course, and complex interaction where they compete with the state. They can innervate some aspect of the state production, but they are also manipulated and repressed by the state structure. So I think it's really important to dissociate what the, the nation-building construction happening at the state level, and then several sociological and political groups that we can identify with very different ideological uh, um, contexts, those who are more kind of Soviet nostalgic, those who are more kind of pro-revolutionary nostalgic, those who have connection with European far-right group, those who live in a complete close world, and that's only the political level. And then if you look at more kind of cultural vector, I think in music, in cinema, you have a lot, in literature, you have, for example, a very rich science fiction, uh, a nationalist literature writing. So that's, you have all these kind of niches of production of something that we could identify as nationalist. Do you, do you see this then, this relationship and the difference between, say, nation building versus nationalism um, do you th- see this as a particular moment in the attempt of Russians who engage in these discourses and in these projects to build a post-Soviet national or Russian identity? Is this part of that general problem? Yeah, I think the general problem is is it's not so much post-Soviet than post-imperial. So it's always the tension about, well, if Russia is the nation state, on which kind of narrative the nation state construction should be built? And there you have several possibilities of interpreting and several groups are fighting to try to influence the way the state will finally decide for some uh, of these elements to enter the official uh, 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 structure or not. So I see it, it's... uh, post-Soviet, but also a kind of post-imperial point of tensions to know, okay, that uh, is Russia a nation state, is that a, 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 an imperial state, but how can it be an ethnic state if it has such territory? So all these kind of point of tensions are there, and they are the one where Russian nationalists as groups and the state structure are trying to interact and compete with each other. 
So let's get into some of the, the, the basic kind of doctrines and basic for various Russian nationalisms. Now, um, one issue that you deal with, one, one chapter in your book, you deal with this, the issue of cosmism. And, and you state that cosmism is a core doctrine in shaping Russian nationalism. So what is cosmism and, and how does it relate to Russian nationalism? I was a bit surprised to, to hear that. Yeah, I think it's a quite complicated uh, uh, doctrine that has not been studied so much. I mean, there are several scholars working on it, but it's usually not considered as being part of the traditional doctrine we think about, like Slavianophilism or Eurasianism. But I think it's really a, a, a fundamental one for Soviet Russia and today's Russia. So if we want to summarize it quickly, cosmism, it's a kind of futuristic ideology that states that technological conquest of space will transform human nature and will allow for extraterritorial future of the humanities. And of course, the link is that the state that will be able to master space conquest will have a kind of messianic destiny for the whole of humanity. And that's interesting because you can feel it arriving already in 19th century through Dostoevsky. Then after Fyodorov was one of the big kind of creator, the, the fun, funder of this cosmist ideology. And what is really fascinating is that it survived the whole Soviet period. So it was celebrated by Lenin in the early 20s. It was celebrated by Stalin in the 30s. It went very well, of course, with Khrushchev and Brezhnev time because it was all about space conquest. And then now it's a kind of relatively important current ideological doctrine that is really feeding all both neo-Eurasianism, the kind of Prokhanov style uh, uh, groups, because it had this combination, which it may seem quite paradoxical, but I think it's not so much of combining religious messianism and this kind of technological messianism. And I always say as a kind of joke that some of these cosmic group now are asking to canonize Gagarin just to show the, <laughs> the kind of mixing of orthodoxy and space conquest. And I think it's a quite strong element. And in fact, there are a lot of things to compare also with the way U.S. has been building its own narrative on space conquest. So you have this kind of deep kind of philosophical links be between you know, space conquest at the technological progress and the sky at the place of God. So the, the links between religion and technology is a strong one. Now, that's that's really interesting. So, so it's it's mostly in this kind of and, and this goes to my next question, which is one of the, the big meta narratives of Russian nationalism is the is geographical. And that is the sense because. Russia is a on a the Eurasian continent that has no natural borders. It has no um, geographical markers to mark out where the Russian nation is. So it has this this uh, history, not unlike the United States, of expanding across the continent. And and the imagination of of Russia's geography and the people who inhabit that geography are really important for for nationalist thought. So um, what are some of the, the geographical notions that are, are part of Russian nationalism? Yeah, I think that's, that's really important. to re We tend to very often insist on history as being part of the, the, the production of, of nationalism. But I think geography is really absolutely crucial for Russia because it's both so... It's a way to kind of replace geopolitical humiliation of the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and to kind of discard political rupture and change of regime. So the more you insist on Russia's territory, the more you can say, well, whatever is happening, it's still a great power and it's still unique just because of the size of the territory. So it's really a very powerful and kind of long-term tool to use for, for nationalist narrative. And I see at least three big categories in which it is kind of oper operationalized. The first one, and that the most classic one, the one you mentioned, it's the kind of Eurasia-related narrative. So Russia's territory is larger, bigger than any other in the world. It's the one without boundaries. It's a specific continent who has a mission between East and West. So that's the kind of the most obvious use of this kind of geographical meta-narrative. But I think there are some other. One which is growing now is relating to the Arctic. And I call it the kind of, you know, going further north 
<laughs> the kind of Nordic location of Russia. So it can be operationalized in different ways. So the Russian state is very much pushing, of course, for, for kind of reviving Russia's great power by the control of the Arctic, by showing Russia's ability to master the Arctic. It's also allowed for a kind of new Cold War narrative on which the, the Russian state can find itself at ease. And at the same time, you have the kind of far-right version of saying, well, if Russia is a Nordic country, Nordic country, it's because it's the one that preserved the white identity. And so you have all this kind of hyperborea-inspired <laughs> narrative, so, which the state doesn't use at all, of course. So you have this Nordic aspect uh, of Russia's geography, which is also developed. And the last one is the cosmism. So it's this idea that you can go higher in the universe. And so, in a sense, the conquest of space, it's a way of continuing territorial expansion. And here also, the comparison with the US is interesting on how territorial expansion in the space is seen as the continuation of a great power status. Right. And I, and I think another uh, an element that I, I think both the United States and Russia shares in its continental expansion because it, the, until they hit natural borders or just hit barriers of other peoples that they can't absorb or conquer. And that is it also that that notion of limitless space uh, also produces an anxiety about that space in the sense of because you have no natural borders, there's a constant um, protection or anxiety about those borders. And I think, you know, I can one can see this produced even today in terms of, you know, the rhetoric about, and this goes to another na nationalist issue, is that you have a large, because of the collapse of the Soviet Union, you have a large Russian diasporas outside of the Russian Federation that, you know, puts into question what are the borders of the Russian nation. Exactly. That's one of the tensions which is quite difficult for Russian nationalists, but also for the state to manage, that if you so nationalists consider that nation and state should over should overlap on one way or another. And so the issue is that okay, millions of Russians or people identified as Russian abroad and a lot of ethnic minorities inside the Russian territory not identified as, as ethnic Russians. So how to manage this kind of gap on both sense, both something is outside the border and something inside is not considered as really part of the ethnic nation. And so that's all the question of, of ethnic nationalism, which is very difficult. And that's really the key issue on which Russian nationalists globally are kind of failing. Is that if they want to promote a kind of ethnic nation, they have to promote a narrative about reducing the territory of the state, which is something which is not an easy product to sell to public opinion. So do you make a distinction between Russian nationalism in terms of its, you know, geographical imagination, the idea of the imperial state, and that of a ethnic Russian nationalism, which, you know, is seen as this kind of, you know, the romanticism of the Russian people united by their ethnicity and, and possibly united through a, a pan-Slavist idea? Yeah, so those promoting ethnic nationalism are really always have been a minority and are in minority today because it's just almost impossible to defend in Russia's case, right? It would mean losing not only North Caucasus, but potentially Siberia, maybe Tatarstan, and then there is no more Russia, the territory. So it's almost impossible to call for a pure ethnic nationalism. So the solution is to call for a Pan-Slavic nationalism or mostly an Eastern Slavic nationalism, right? So mostly saying, well, Ukraine and Belarus should stay inside Russia because we are so close. In fact, we are part of the same group. Or it can be a kind of orthodox, pan-orthodox nationalism. But even that is kind of still marginal compared to the imperial nationalism, which is really the main perception and the mainstream, because it's also linked to the Soviet Union, right? The, 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 the Russia, the empire and Russia, the Soviet Union kind of overlap. So the way the state tried to negotiate that is to promote what we call Dirjavni nationalism. So the nationalism of a great power, just to say, well, ethnic nation, sometimes it's important, but very often it's not. 
So we are fine with multinationality, but what is really important is that every citizen is supportive of the state. And then if everybody can kind of work together under the state umbrella, then everybody is Russian, depending how you define the term. So that's the way the state can f try to manage these two contradictory trends. And historically, too, you know, in the 19th century and the beginning of nationalisms throughout uh, the R Russian imperial empire, but also in Europe, the Russian state, the imperial state, always had uh, a very complicated relationship with eth Russian ethno-nationalism because it, they didn't want ethnic strife on the one hand. Uh, and they they had this they had they build the empire as a multi-ethnic empire with various rights and privileges. So I, I always see when when people discuss Russian nationalism, they need to make a very clear distinction between what you're talking about. And that is this main imperial thrust versus the minority of the Russian ethnic nationalists. Exactly. And so now the the. The, the relationship to these two notions are even more complicated because there is no more empire, right? So you have both the ethnic nationalism, the memory of the empire or the Soviet Union, and then what to do with the territory as it is now if Russia has to become a nation state, but still a nation state that will be a multinational nation state, right? So they have three levels of complexity to manage. Now, now, one ideology that tries to negotiate all of this, of course, is Eurasianism. And this is another vector within Russian nationalism that emerged in the interwar period. Um, and you, you wrote about its Eurasianism relationship with the fascisms emerging in Europe in the interwar period. Uh, so how did, how did Eurasianism view fascism in Europe in the 1920s and 30s? Yeah, that's really an important point, I think, if we want to understand what was Eurasianism, the, the classic one, the one of the, the 20s and 30s, because it was really part of this European, you know, atmosphere of the time. So it believed in European decadence, it believed that there was the rise of new forces that would transform the world. There were really all these first uh, uh, founder father of Eurasianism were really deeply shaken by the Bolshevik revolution. They were afraid and admirative of it. So on many aspects, on all this kind of being at the same time revolutionary and counter-revolutionary in ideology, on that Eurasianism is very close to Italian fascism. They were believing that you should have a kind of ideocratic regime, so a regime ruled by an idea with a very specific elite that would be an enlightened elite. You would have ethnic and religious institutions acting to represent the people. So on many aspects, it's close to the, the historic Italian fascism, with one big difference is that there was no cult of the military or of war, you know, of uh, death. So the, the Eurasianism never had this kind of yeah attraction to death and violence and war as a way to regenerate humanity. So on that they were quite slightly dissociated from from tr traditional fascist movement of the of the twenties. And then of course in the thirties they were very much anti-national socialism in Germany. So that's also a big shift, of course, because Nazism was anti-Slavic, but just because Eurasianists didn't believe in kind of race narrative in superiority or inferiority of nations. So that's interesting because on many aspects, they were close to Italian fascism, but with this kind of almost leftist coloration coming about the decolonization, the revenge of colonized people against Europe. So they kind of made an interesting mix, which of course explains why now it can be revived and kind of get quite successful, even if Today's neo-Eurasianism, the one promoted by Dugin, is really closer to European fascism than what the, the founding fathers were in the 20s. And also, too, I, I, I was, because um, I didn't know it, but I was struck by the ambivalence that the Eurasianists of the interwar period had towards um, the Jewish issue, which is you had a, you had a major split within them. Um, so what is, what, is the, and what is the relationship to uh you know, Russian Jews, but also East European Jews in light of German fascism? 
Yes, yeah, so their positioning was a quite interesting one. So they were considering the Jews living on the Eurasian territory, on the, the territories of the Russian Empire, were legitimate actors and nations which should be given rights and we should be, in a sense, participating in the construction of this Eurasian utopia. So on that, they were very philosemite, uh, philosemite. But at the same time, they were very critical of Jews living in Western Europe, those who were socialists, revolutionary, Marxists, those who were Zionists. And so they have these ambiguities, which is typical of the, of the 20s, of sometimes defending some aspect of Judaism, it, it was a kind of Eurasian Judaism, and at the same time being very opposed to what they interpret as kind of revolutionary cosmopolitan Judaism that will then give birth to Israel. And that's interesting that for them, Jews, because they are the elected nation, so in a sense they compete with Russian, right, in terms of who is elected <laughs> by God, Jews should stay on the territory of Eurasia because it's Eurasia which has been elected by God. So going to Israel is a mistake <laughs> that Jews are doing because the elected territory is Eurasia and not Israel. So that's an interesting kind of competition between elected <laughs> nations. You know, you know, I have to say, as you were talking about, on the one hand, the Eurasianist support for the promotion of, say, ethnic culture, uh, nationhood within Eurasia, but also a opposition to say something like Zionism, it, it reminds me of Soviet nationality policy to some extent. Is there an intersection there as well that you know of? Yes, yeah, so not directly, but clearly it's based on the same idea that all the nations participating in the Soviet construction and recognized as such are entitled to some rights. So Jews got Birobidjan, that was <laughs> even further east than they could have imagined. But, but clearly, yeah, you have the same kind of definition of the legitimacy of being Jews inside this kind of Eurasian destiny. And in a sense, what is happening now on the way the, the Putin's regime is really promoting Judaism inside Russia and trying to kind of revive it and celebrate it as a product of Eurasia is also the same kind of tradition. So it's very far away from, from what we know traditionally about Russian anti-Semitism, which was also there, but that's a totally different trend of thinking. So another rather strange um, vector that you find within Russian nationalist doctrine is this idea of the new chronology, which, which I have a, a, a kind of fascination with. Um, what is the new chronology and where does it fit within Russian nationalist ideas? Yes, yeah, so the new chronology was really a huge popular success in Russian bookstores in the 90s and early 2000s. Now it's kind of declining because it has been replaced by much more diverse conspirationist narratives. But it really belongs to this kind of conspiracy side of nationalism. So it's a promoting an alternative history, world history, in which Russia would in fact have a higher, bigger, larger territory and more kind of historical depths than what uh, uh, is usually recognized in the official historiography. So it has all this kind of plot aspect. There was a plot by both Western and Russian historians to deny Russia's historical and geographical Depth, but it's also very classic because already in 19th century, the Slavophile historiography was trying to reconnect Russia with ancient civilization of Middle East and the Mediterranean world. So it's also kind of reviving this 19th century uh, uh, historiography. And what I found really interesting is that when you try to identify, because it was really a huge success in bookstore, it was really hundreds of thousands of copies sold. What was interesting for me that how do we know what people understand when they read the new chronology? Do they really believe that, you know, Russia was already existing 3,000 years ago and there was a kind of world plot to deny that in historiography? Or do they... The Mongols were really Cossacks or something exactly, like this? Exactly, like or... <laughs> Christopher Columbus was the Cossack who were sent on a mission to conquer America and so on. So I always wonder how people read history also as a fiction. And that's what I was saying, that I think there is a very strong science fiction aspect 
in Russian nationalism today, that if, in a sense, if you want to recreate the Russia you dream about, this Russia can exist only through science fiction, dystopia, or this kind of alternative history. And so probably readers have a kind of postmodern reading of that and can take some critical distance. Uh, uh, and I hope not everyone is reading the new chronology and strictly believing every sentence of it. <laughs> no, but, you know, this idea of the alternative history, it, it, seems, to, it seems to be uh, uh, right now a fashion on the right more generally, um, because, you know, I could also point to a bunch of this stuff with amongst kind of confederacy and white supremacists here in the United States, which is interesting because this kind of utopian thinking or alternative, you know, potential alternative history tended to be more on the utopian aspects of the left. And that has died out. But here you find it on the right. Exactly. That's a very good point. It was before, yeah, science fiction tend to be leftist. And now science fiction, it's not only science fiction or alternative history. It's really dystopia. Like there is kind of a parallel reality in which, you know, Russia or the Confederacy or white <laughs> supremacists would have more power. So that's interesting to see that they feel they have to invest that field to kind of compensate for the difficulties of promoting their idea in the kind of classic <laughs> political space. Hey, dear listeners, I just wanted to say thanks to everybody who listens to the SRV podcast and the support that many of you have given to the show. This podcast wouldn't exist if listeners didn't show the love, especially by chipping in money every month. But I also wanted to make an appeal to the silent majority out there who listen on a regular basis and do little in return for the pleasure. So I want all of you to think about what this podcast means to you. If it's worth $5 or $10 a month, then show me the money. Hell, if it's only worth $1 a month, then that's fine too. There are things I want to do in the coming year to diversify the format of the podcast. I want to do some historical documentaries. I want to provide more transcripts of interviews. And I want to do some more live events. All of this, unfortunately, takes money. So become a patron at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog. Go to iTunes and write a review. Tell your friends, or just drop me a line to express your appreciation or offer some in-kind services. So I hope you guys all enjoy the show, and I hope you keep supporting it. And for those of you who aren't supporting it, I hope you start to. I want to thank everybody for listening and for your support. I'm done for now. Now on with the show. Now, Western media and, and commentators have elevated uh, Alexander Dugin to a kind of guru status uh, in Russia and on the Russian right. Um, how do you see Dugin and his place in, in Russia's right-wing co- cosmology today? Yeah, I think really that has been one of the big mistakes of Western scholarship, and I probably contributed to it also, so I'm not accusing anyone. But Dugin has been really overrated. He's really not informing Putin or the Kremlin. I think it's really important to try to move away from that interpretation. Dugin is important on some aspects. He's important because he was the first to import European far-right literature to Russia very early, already during perestroika time and the early 90s, and translating it to accommodate it to a Russian audience. And when I say translate it, it's in the old sense, like literally translating from French, Italian, German, but also adapting European far-right ideologies to a Russian context. And it's continuing even today, this kind of promotion of big philosophical theories coming from the West. And so what he has been doing since several years is really promoting Heidegger and, of course, a very oriented (laughs) interpretation of Heidegger and making it available to the Russian public. So on that is important. It's also important because he was the first to be linked with far-right movement in Europe and dialogue with them. So he also, he was a kind of precursor and he's still very famous among some groups of the European far-right, because he was the first Russian to approach them. And then the last point is that is important because he contributed to rehabilitate geopolitics and the notion of Eurasia already very early in the 90s. But in a sense, 
this got reappropriated and transformed so much by state uh, 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 narrative that you cannot really say now that when Putin is using the term of Eurasia, he's making a reference to Dugin. I think it's totally mistaken interpretation. I mean, Eurasia is flexible enough to be used by, by several people. So on, on all these three aspects, he was important. But he's not a guru of the today Kremlins. He's, he has very bad relation with the majority of the 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 people in charge of the Kremlin's ideological production, like Vladislav Surkov. We know that the two men have really <laughs> awful relations. And, you know, he's too esoteric. He's not enough pro-Soviet. He's too pro-fascist, pro-European to offer a narrative that the, the Kremlin could easily kind of play with. So, in fact, there are a lot of other people who offer something that is more respectable for what the Kremlin is looking to and Dugin is really not part of that network. He's too far away. And he got really marginalized after the Ukrainian crisis. He really went too far <laughs> in his radicalism. And since 2015, he has been losing the majority access. He, I mean, all the access he had to Russian media and so on. And now he's really finding himself in a very marginalized position, working mostly with Konstantin Malofiev, the orthodox businessman, but he's really outside the, the mainstream now. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, it, the way he's been framed, uh, you know, as Putin's brain and whatnot, um, as, as made, made it him as a player. But the way you just ended with working with Malofeyev is that Dugin has lost all his patrons except for a handful. Exactly. Because he's too... I mean, in a sense, he's very honest with himself in the sense that he's continued to selling the same ideological products in the last three decades. So sometimes he suddenly gets more exposure, but that's very rare. And mostly he's a kind of a very alone, lonely uh, uh, ideologist compared to all those who can be really close to the Kremlin and who offer much more kind of classic, you know, kind of Soviet revisited ideological product that, that are much more easier to, to kind of promote. So so why do you think so many commentators latched on to him as opposed to other, you know, right-wing thinkers in Russia and Russian nationalists? So because he was the first, so there is always this kind of time, <laughs> right? It takes time for, I mean, the time for Western scholars to realize that the one they are studying is already kind of past. They are missing the, the new ones because he was the one who got translated a lot, who translated himself, but who got really published in, in, in French, in English, in German. And because many people wanted to continue to look at nationalism as just being, you know, kind of lonely ideologist able to influence the leadership and didn't realize that there was a whole ecosystem of producing ideologies developing with figures that are maybe less famous abroad, but which, which are much more influential. And so that, I think that's one of the shifts of the scholarship now is to move away from people, from figures, to more look at the kind of the ecosystem of producing ideologies, and especially nationalist ones. Well, in fact, I mean, you, you call Dugan an entrepreneur, and it sounds like many, many have fallen victim to his entrepreneurship, right, of, of kind of promotion of himself. Yeah, exactly. Because to be successful as an entrepreneur, you need to read very carefully what the regime wants you to do. And very often, Dugin has been too far away. I mean, clearly on Donbass, on the, the notion of a Russian spring that will come and change the regime. I mean, how could he hope to get support from the Kremlin if he's himself asking for a regime change? So you have much more nuanced much kind of classic conservative figure who have been quite influential around the presidential administration and who are not so visible and not so extreme or radical as Dugin is, who have been the, the most successful. So this leads to my next question is, and then who, who are these people? Because Russia is not now, nor has it ever been a nation state, right? It, it, the, we've, we've talked a lot about the struggle it's had over its identity as an imperial or a nation state. Um, yet, you know, Russian nationalism has appeared off and on as an ideology that the state has, you know, instrumentalized for to promote whatever, you know, 
foreign policy or even domestic policy purposes. So what is, how do you understand the Russian state's relationship with Russian nationalism? I think it's a complex relationship of both. So the Russian state is both looking for inspiration, right? Is looking for who is producing meanings inside the Russian society and trying to capture that for itself and to integrate it into its own uh, 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 toolkit of ideological product to stay in power and legitimize the regime as it is. So the relationship to Russian nationalists is both cooperation and competition. The Russian state is both interested in what sometime Russian nationalists can be producing in terms of ideologies, but also in terms of being active in the streets. So sometimes the relationship is ambiguous, but m- more often that not, the Russian state is afraid of any kind of ideological competition coming from the nationalist or the liberal or the communist side. And so they are also afraid of any kind of, you know, grassroots movement. And that's really what they realize with Russian nationalism, that it's very difficult to play with it without opening the Pandora box and suddenly having movements that have some grassroots realities and who can be very active in the street and suddenly they are no more controlled by the state. And so since 2011-12, in the protest, the anti-Putin protest, when the regime realized that nationalists could work with liberals in the street in trying to push the regime to change, the relationship has been a much more kind of repressive one and a much more careful one. Also because they realized, for example, that all the the kind of skinhead groups that were very active in the second half of the 2000s in the street with the very anti-migrant narratives, then the state realized that suddenly an anti-migrant narrative can become an anti-state narrative. Once you say like, well, there are too many migrants in Russia because the police is not doing anything because law enforcement agencies are corrupted and Putin is protecting them, then you shift from being anti-migrant to being anti-regime. And so the state now really clearly understand that and really was much more repressive this last year than it was before with Russian nationalists. Yeah, the, the, the leaders of the Russian kind of street nationalist movements have all been jailed for the most part. Yeah, many of them have been jailed, websites have been closed, so the control made on online publication is really stronger. The connection that some Russian nationalist group could have with some law enforcement agencies seems to be now really on the law side and very much controlled. So, And in a sense, nationalists lost a large part of their legitimacy with Crimea, right? That the 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 ability of the regime to appear as the, 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 the best protector of the Russian nation by annexating Crimea, in a sense, delegitimized the Russian nationalist narrative about the Russian state is not protecting the Russian people. And, and what about a figure like Alexei Navalny, who's kind of a liberal nationalist or a democratic nationalist? Where does he fall in this very broad nationalist con- cosmology in Russia? Yeah, for me, Navani is an interesting case, and I really consider him as a nationalist. I think he should be part of this when we look at all the groups. He should really be integrated because he has been very clear on his, his admiration for European far-right groups, the, to Marine Le Pen, different uh, French, uh, he mentioned the Italian, he mentioned the Austrian far-right. So he's really kind of in tune with the rise of illiberal or, or populist far-right movement that, that we see in Western Europe. And in a sense, if the Russian version, <laughs> in a different context, of course, and with also his anti-corruption uh, uh, narrative, but he has, been, he has been very explicit on, on what he wants, how he defines ethnic Russian, and he defines them in a quite ethnic, ethnicized version. He's very anti-migrant, very aggressive against uh, uh, migration. So on several issues, he had very clear ethno-nationalist statement. The point is that depending what will be his political f- future, I don't know how he will play with that or not, because it's not an easy tool to play with, to be an ethnic nationalist. So, of course, the anti-corruption one is a more easier tool to try to get uh, uh, support among some liberal factions of the, the population, but the combination will not be an easy one to grow at the same time, given the general context in Europe, you could really imagine 
this combination growing in the future of being both kind of pro-Western, liberal, or depending how you want to define liberal, right? Uh, Democrat and ethnic nationalist at the same time. It seems that he his that nationalist aspect of him has been softened or de-emphasized in his own rhetoric in the last couple of years. He he kind of is, seems to have distanced himself from at least his early uh, relationships with the you know the the migrants march, the Russia march, and things like this. Yeah, he has been really taken distance because he realized that it was not a good kind of ideological product to sell to the the liberal part of the population. At the same time, if you watch several of his videos for the presidential campaign of last year, 2018, is still very anti-migrant, but it has been kind of reshifting. Clearly, he took some distance from the kind of the skinhead groups he was connected to, because then he probably realized it was not uh, uh, good for his own visibility and his own credibility. And finally, um, is Vladimir Putin a Russian nationalist? And, and if he is, what, what does that mean? And if he isn't, why do you think he isn't? Because this is another term, you know, like nationalism itself, Putin is, is constantly referred to in Western press and media as a Russian nationalist. Yeah, he also, I think that's a mistake to consider Putin as a nationalist. And he also, with the same confusion with being authoritarian or with being aggressive in foreign policy. So you always have this kind of confusion of using nationalist as if it was a synonym of, of being an authoritarian leader and not having or having a, a foreign policy that would be considered in the West as aggressive. I think he's a great power defensor. He's a Dirjavnik, right? He believes in the domination, the supremacy of the state over citizens and the status of Russia as a great power. He can present himself as conservative, promoter of Christian values. All that are kind of ideological elements he's, he's showing, but that's not nationalism. And on the contrary, he has been very clear several times regularly that he believes in Russia as being a multinational state. He doesn't believe in the nation in an ethnic sense because he's a statist, right? So legitimacy cannot be coming from the ethnic nation. Legitimacy for him is coming from the state. For example, his policy on, you know, continuing to promote open border with countries that are part of the uh, Eurasian Economic Union. On that, he's really showing that he's not a nationalist because the public opinion is much more xenophobic than what Putin himself is saying about Russia pivotal role in Eurasia and therefore having opening open border where migrants are welcome to come. So, so he's, he's a much more kind of statist personality than he is a nationalist. That doesn't mean that, of course, sometimes he's not playing with some rhetorical element about, you know, we want to be sure migrants speak good Russian because we don't want the Russian language to be degraded. Or this Ruski meter idea, things like this. Yeah, the, the Russian the Russian world notion for me is a quite complicated one. I'm not sure it's a purely it's a sign of ethnic nationalism. I think it's a kind of soft power or post imperial notion because I often tend, you know, to compare it with the, the notion of Francophonie in France, which is also a kind of post imperial notion, like, you know, all these people who share our culture and speak our language. They are part of our world in one way or another. So it's all, I mean, it may have some nuances of ethnic nationalism, but I think the, the Russian world notion is mostly used as, as Russia's one kind of soft power tool for, 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 for reasserting Russia into this world. But clearly, I think Putin cannot be defined as an ethno-nationalist. And, and, and in many respects, then, I mean, his, his relationship with Russian nationalism is consistent with, you know, most uh, leaders of Russia in the last two centuries. Absolutely. I think on that, he has been very clear that Russian ethnic nationalism would destroy Russia. It would destroy Russia territory. It would destroy Russia internal stability and ha harmony, and it would destroy Russia as a great power. So I, I see him as a clearly anti-nationalist in that sense. That was Marlena Lauruel, 
an associate director and research professor at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies in the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University and co-director of PONARS, the Program on New Approaches to Research and Security in Eurasia. She's the author of several books in English, French, and Russian. Her most recent books are Russian Nationalism, Imaginaries, Doctrines, and Political Battlefields, published by Rutledge, an edited collection, Entangled Far Rights, a Russian-European intellectual romance in the 20th century, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press, and co-authored with Jean Radvani, Understanding Russia, the Challenges of Transformation, published by Roman and Littlefield. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org. Until next time, bye! And seventy three, two thousand and eighty four, two thousand and ninety three. Light years ahead, you and me gonna be getting down on a space bed. We gonna get married in June. Step inside my little ship I can tell by your way